Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, the CMPU, in association with 898 Authentic Rock and Roll, proudly present the ultimate catalog to No one would have believed in the last years of the 19th century that human affairs were being watched from the timeless worlds of space. No one could have dreamed that we were being scrutinized as someone with a microscope studies screeches that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. Few men even considered the possibility of life on other planets and yet, across the gulf of space, minds immeasurably superior to ours regarded this Earth with envious eyes and, ugh, and slowly and surely they drew their plans against us. Okay, that's my new intro. What do you guys think? That was fucking terrible. Uh, okay, <laughs> Se season two, I'm going to take over the intros, and, and here's the first one. Th th this is all we need, okay? There she was, just a walking down the street, singing doo-wah diddy, diddy dum diddy do. Welcome right. to the Ultimate Catalog Clash. I got, Boom, a question. Done. I got a question for you about that song. There she was, just walking down the street, singing, do I did it, did it, do Snapping her fingers and shuffling her feet, right? Yep. This. She looked good. She didn't look good. She looked like a fucking maniac. What do you mean well, she looked you... good snapping her fingers and shuffling her feet? Okay, if the woman's hot enough, she could be picking her nose and flicking it at the homeless, and she would look good. <laughs> you look like a spasmatic idiot when you were doing it. I don't know what the fuck. You had your castanetas going on. It was terrible. But a hot woman? Damn right. She looked okay. good, she looked fine, and I nearly lost my goddamn man. But back to my intro, Corey. Don't derail my bloody intro. Oh, okay, Do you know what fair. that was from? Scott might no, have more of an art. I think there's a the better Flintstones? chance Scott would, but... Oh, I thought it was the Flintstones, I, but... I don't know, but it, it felt um, it felt like Land of Confusion to me. I felt like you were trying to do a tie-in. It's Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds, which is a phenomenal uh, concept album, if you've never heard it. Mm, there you go. I'd have to check that out. I listen to Doo-Wah Diddy, Diddy Dum, Diddy Do, so I don't listen to concept albums. <laughs> We've established that over the course of the last few weeks. <laughs> we still don't even know who let the dogs out. <laughs> I know, right? Who? 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 <laughs> A few weeks, 16 weeks we've been doing this, my friend. Is it 16, eh? Yeah, well, I mean... You're, you're... This is, well, 17 if you count the uh, trailer show, and then this would be 18, so yeah. Well, we should remind people that this is the Ultimate Catalog Clash. With myself and my co-host Corey Morissette and our very special guest star tonight, uh, Scott Haskin, take on the discography of one artist per season to find out which record will emerge as the best album. And we have a side bet to find out who will choose the artist or band for season two in this case. Um, we've given a score out of 100 for each album, which was broken down two sides of a net record. We gave it 10 for lyrics, 10 for music and five for production with a cumulative score of 100. Apart from the last album, We Can't Dance, which we had to average because there are four sides to that album. Um, so this season we covered Phil Collins' Era Genesis and Scott Askin. Thank you so much for jumping on this call and being our MC for the evening. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. I've been waiting for this for weeks as you guys gave me your answers quite some time ago. And I've just been sitting every week waiting in the wings to bring the, the uh, results on you to find out who's going to pick the band for season two. And you know what's crazy? I have no idea what score I sent to you. I just genuinely have, I have no recollection at all. None. I can't even, I won't even be able to ballpark it. How about you, Corey? Do you know what you said? I know exactly what I said oh, because shit. I took You're this very seriously. I took this very seriously. <laughs> I had charts. I had Venn diagrams. I, I conducted interviews with your friends and family. Randy Woods gave me a ton of information, by the way, and you need therapy. Holy that hell. But before we get into that, I know, but no, I, I really, I workshopped the fuck out of this and I made sure I was comfortable with my number and asked Scott when I was on a call with him, I actually changed my number a couple of times. Like, oh no, no, let's go with this. No, no, let's mm -hmm. go with this. And I, I got to say, I'm pretty pleased, actually, with the number I came up with, because I, I think I got a shot. It's, it's true. Corey made pie charts using real pie. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I'm not getting any thinner. <laughs> Thanks for ratting me out, Scott. I'm just showing your dedication. Oh, now okay. I want, but now I want, all I want is pie now. Do we have to do yeah, this podcast? I pie? think I have pie in the fridge. <laughs> do you? I'm on my way to Saskatoon in a couple of days. I'll keep, I'll keep some pie for you. <laughs> is it Saskatoon pie? That, that would be kind of ironic, wouldn't it? It'd be Alanis Morissette ironic. 
Yeah, I mean, <laughs> let's not get into that. That's a whole that's a whole podcast okay. about ironic. <laughs> <laughs> we could do one episode on each thing that isn't ironic and why it isn't. There you go. There you go. No, well, I mean, we've we've got a little we've got a little plan here. I think maybe we'll just throw it over to Scott and we'll let him. Sure. Uh, we'll let him MC. Sounds good. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's been it's been really enjoyable. I think this is a great, unique approach to reviewing an album. I like your rating my scale. My idea. I like yeah. that Corey came up with the whole thing, and Kevin tagged along. Yep. Sorry, I do a podcast with Corey. I don't do. It, it's literally what happened. I mean, there's, the, the reason I'm not arguing is because that is exactly what happens. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing about Corey is every 32 seconds he's coming up with a new show. It's just a matter of whether when he's going to fit into his schedule. I, I just came up with a new one, actually. Uh oh. See. Yep. It's, well, it's, the, it's the ultimate Haskin clash, and he's going to take on Kevin Brown <laughs> and just debate just whatever I come up with. Oh no! Turtles, go! <laughs> pro or con? I don't like them. They're miserable. I'm pro turtle. Trustworthy bastards. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, 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 uh, I'll back anything that can hide its own head in its own shell. But what are they hiding in there, Scott? What have they got to hide? Just be out in the open. There was, there's no transparency in the turtle community. I don't it really think you trust isn't. them. Well, it's because when you find something of value, you just don't tell people about it. National security, turtle security. They're capitalist bastards. They're, I mean, the turtles are the Republicans of the uh, amphibian world. <laughs> oh, we've well, crossed the gonna, line now. I'm not going to argue that. Yeah. Just wait. Taylor Swift will write a song and it'll change everything. <laughs> so you guys have been, have been at this for a while, covering the Phil Collins era of Genesis. What I found most interesting about this being your first pick, knowing you guys as well as I do is that Kevin's more of a prog guy, Corey's more of a non-prog guy, and I thought the teeter-totter was just going to lean one way and then just shift and lean the other way through the rest of the show. And that did not happen. Explain yourselves. Corey, I'll let you go first. Well, I, I'm as surprised as anyone. I thought th those first few records, Trick of the Tail, Wind and Withering, and then there were three, I thought there's no way I'm going to like anything on here. But um, all got uh, positive reviews for me, uh, some more positive than others. But uh, I think I was 35, or sorry, uh, we were 73 and a half on Trick of the Tail, 72 on Wind and Withering, and 65 on And Then There Were Three. So, uh, you know, well above 50, kind of surprised me. There was some some really bad stuff on there, uh, Who Done It? Uh, I'm looking in your direction, that I'd never <laughs> heard before, and I just will never, ever hear again. But I, I found some hidden gems, too, and I find myself collecting some older Genesis vinyl now because I, I don't mind a, a longer suite, and I don't mind, you know, I, I think I made my, my points clear as we're breaking down the songs whenever uh, Tony was uh, being a little too uh, pretentious for my liking. But um, uh, overall, it, it, it's a good catalog. They're a hell of a band. They're very talented musicians. So um, I'm not shocked that I, I knew once we hit Genesis, it was going to be all, you know, eights and nines from Corey. But I was kind of surprised that Kevin was as high as he was on the pop mm -hmm. stuff. I kind of thought along the lines of Scott, it was going to be this teeter-totter effect, right? Where he's going to be like all tens early and then, oh, I can't dance this shit. And then we flip it, right? And it, it didn't happen that way. And I was actually pleasantly surprised by that. Yeah, I mean, it, we talked about, I think, on the, the first episode that when we sort of decided that Genesis was going to be the first band that we did on this thing, I sort of got the sense pretty quickly that I don't know if Corey knows how much there was still left of the prog era in Phil Collins, you know, because there's five albums, yeah, five or four albums, really, that are pretty prog rock before you get to Abacab, and then it starts to shift into that other space. So it was really sort of, I thought, yeah, this could be great. I'm going to be able to hear someone listen to some of these songs for the first time in real time, like I do with, with Randy on the Queen podcast. And so that's always a joy, right, when you get to sort of experience someone listening to songs and artists and albums that you love for that first time with a completely fresh set of ears because it's sort of you know there's been plenty of times on this podcast Corey where you've said something and I thought you know what I've never really considered that song that way mm -hmm. and then a couple of very notable examples where I don't really listen to that song the same way because there's someone there on the other side now on the pop side of Genesis I mean I got into Genesis the same like around Invisible Touch-ish maybe the you know maybe Genesis but then I went back and got into the prog stuff because I, you know, I'm a big old nerd and Scott, I know that you love an instrumental and I, I do too. Um, so for me, I love the whole band and I love the Peter Gabriel era as well. So to me, it was sort of a, this was an, a slam dunk for me. So it was like, well, I know this catalog. 
So for me, it's mainly refreshing and then going back. So it was, like I said, it was mainly about just the joy of finding those early songs that you enjoyed too, Corey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I found it interesting too. I didn't really realize how much of Genesis they kind of overplayed passages a little bit for me. You know, I'm a big prog guy, but I like Emerson, Lake and Palmer. I like King Crimson. I like bands that are constantly moving and changing things. And I found Genesis had their prog, but they also just had a lot of repeating passages that just kind of went on a bit too much. I, I know, Corey, you were not a fan of that. Yeah, that, that's a good observation because you, you could pick them out too. Like, oh, this sounds just like this passage from either an earlier song or a song that I knew better from later on in the catalog. Oh, they just, you know, called back to this. Uh, so yeah, a, a little repetitive. That kind of surprised me too. I was expecting more uh, wide range because my only uh, you know exposure to the Peter Gabriel stuff was the documentary I saw when he came out in the fucking fox head in his wife's dress <laughs> and was he's not, harb he's not letting this go. He's never place. gonna let this go. <laughs> it's stupid. It's fucking dumb. It's and, 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 and the music was terrible. And I'm like, if that's prog, uh, no, thank you. But I don't know. Something happened when when he left the band. I think and. They, they, they kind of rode that line a little bit, but I was kind of surprised by the repetitiveness, actually, uh, like, like Scott was alluding to. Uh, I, I thought they'd be a little more uh, kind of out there, but they were even grounded kind of more in traditional kind of pop roots, even early on, even during A Trick of the Tail. I don't know if that yeah. was prevalent uh, in albums before that, like fucking Supper's Ready and uh, The Lamb and all that kind of stuff. I have no idea because I haven't listened to that. Maybe you can uh, mm-hmm. fill us in on that. Yeah, I mean, there's still... I mean, there's not, they're not really pop hooks, but they've got, you know, those, there, are, there are melodic pop sensibilities to some of those early Genesis songs. And I would say just as a quick caveat too, because I'm not a big prog guy, which I know sometimes I'm definitely more attuned to the prog stuff that Genesis did. I'm a Genesis fan. Like I don't, okay. I, and I know ELP and I know Yes, and I know a lot of those bands, but I don't listen to them a ton. And I think, you know, maybe it's just because I really love Peter Gabriel's voice and I really love Phil Collins' voice. And the voice usually is one of the first things that draws me into music. Um, so although I do have more of a sort of a tolerance, let's say, or a, a, an inclination toward prog, I'm not a, I'm not quote unquote a prog guy for sure. So, so I think that was a nice little, um, we both kind of surprised each other, I think, as we went through um, the two sort of phases of this, this era of the band. Interesting. I will say I, I, I'm a fan of Peter Gabriel. I absolutely love the song Salisbury Hill. When I'm in the car and that song comes on, the volume is up full. Uh, That song just deserves to be played at full blast. Um, He did definitely leave a mark on Genesis. And I think those first couple of Phil Collins albums were really kind of searching for what they wanted to be. Yeah. And then when Phil Collins started doing his own albums and saw that commercial ability um, I think right around that time, maybe a little bit earlier with uh, Abacab and, and Duke, they started finding that that was a good path for them. And obviously, they became much more successful in that time. Yeah. And one thing that Corey and I kind of picked up on is you can, there's a real marked transition when Phil Collins, as we sort of said, it finds his voice, mm-hmm. you know, because on Trick of the Tail, he's still very much kind of doing the Gabriel thing. And he's quite, he's holding that sort of, the big Phil Collins voice that we all know from the from the 80s, he's holding that back. And it's not really until Duke and Abacab where he does find that voice. And I think that's the game changer, right? He's okay, Phil's found his identity now. And then, as you said on one of the episodes, Corey, that Mike and Tony were smart enough to recognize, okay, to- uh, Phil's plugged into what people are listening to. So what we need to do is not, you know, don't abandon what Genesis is at its heart, but find a way to blend those two things so that, Yes, we're making interesting music, but we're also making it more commercially attractive, which is never a bad thing. Something that just dawned on me as we were chatting here was that, and then there were three, was the stumble. Because even A Trick of the Tail and Wind and Wuthering were, were, were very good kind of complete albums. And I wonder yeah. if the Steve Hackett factor kind of played into that, that once they got to the three of them, I don't know what happened during those sessions. Maybe they were a little afraid going out as just a three-piece and kind of creating yeah. without Steve Hackett, without Peter Gabriel. But that was the real stumble. Like, Trick of the Tail and Wind and Weathering as, as complete albums, uh, pretty, pretty successful, in my yeah. opinion. Well, I think you'd even said, right, that Mike Rutherford was still sort of very almost recalcitrant or not reluctant to be himself because you've... He's, I mean, Steve Hackett's a pretty hard act to follow. He's a bloody great guitarist and a great prog rock guitarist. So... Do you emulate him? Do you do something different? That's a bit scary if you want to go and try and change the direction of the, the guitars. So on, you know, and then there were three, and even on Duke to a certain extent, there's a, there's not a lot of guitar. He's really letting Tony take the lead, 
on all those sort of instrumental sections. So you don't really hear a lot of Mike. And it's not until Genesis and Invisible Touch and We Can't Dance that he really comes to the front and you start hearing these these great licks and these great riffs that he's, he's, he can put together. Well, it's always a, a challenge when you lose a key member of a band for two reasons. One, the writing side obviously is going to be heavily affected, whether you replace them or don't replace them. And then what you do with that on tour, because now you've got to take the songs that you've been playing and figure out how to do it with that one less person, unless you hire another stage person. You've already got to hire a drummer to yeah. get Phil Collins out from behind that kit. But how about some props to Phil Collins for coming out of that comfort zone and being willing to go out front? We're all drummers. Part of the reason we picked that is so that we can just do our thing in the back of the stage and just ignore everyone else happily. Leave me alone. I just want to smash things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that had to be an adjustment for him, though. And, and not only to come out front, but to not be doing the thing he got into the band to do in the first place, which is being the drummer. And, being a and he never wanted the job. Yeah, right? he never front, wanted to be the front man. Yeah. Being a singer is one thing. Being a front man is an entirely different thing. And I think, you know, as we discovered, Corey, and I didn't know this before we started this, that the original plan was that, or one of the original plans was that Phil would do the vocals on the albums. But then when they went out on tour, Phil would go back behind the kit and they would get session singers, which is a very odd idea to have because how, how often has that ever worked in music history where a, a major touring act has a session singer i mean you know you'll have a session keyboard player or a third guitarist or whatever it might be but a singer that's your that's your focal point for the band that needs to be the identity of the band in a lot of ways right no i, yeah. and I think the band was just kind of hoping that phil would take a shine to it and he didn't originally right he was yeah uh you know kind of helping other singers kind of audition with the band and no one is fitting in and everyone's like well phil you could kind of do it and he's like no 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 i kind of like just being the drummer and and like it took him a couple albums like you said before he finally kind of decided, okay, you know, th this is my lot, you know, let's do it. I want to write a song uh, about fucking my mother and call it Mama, <laughs> and let's put it on the self-titled album, and boom, away you go. So, Scott, yeah. can I ask you, Scott, like, what's your, yeah. um, how familiar are you with Genesis's catalog as a, as a whole? I got into them uh, in the Abacab era because they had the video for Abacab on uh, MTV. And then uh, I think No Reply at All came out next. Yeah. That was one of the first albums I got actually was, was Abacab. Uh, absolutely fell in love with it, especially Dodo Lurker, because the drums are just out of this world. They're amazing. Um, but yeah, I, I've always liked the album on the whole. I've, I've liked the song Whodunit because I think it's just sounds different, you know, with the the way that they take the tape and, and kind of bend it so that that first uh, drum hit and, key, and keyboard hit uh, bend a little bit. And um, I like the uniqueness of it. I think as a, for a song, it's fairly boring. But there's some uniqueness to it that I really like. The other thing I really like about Genesis is that uh, Tony Banks will use keyboard sounds that no one else will use. And he'll find a way to blend them in yeah. to where they're not fucking annoying like they would be if anyone else used them. <laughs> and he does cross that line sometimes, I'll admit. there's There's been times <laughs> where I'm like, that that was either a poor choice or that was a poor mix. Yeah, but I mean, uh, but I like that he'll he'll use a lot of stabby sounds and things that other people just don't use. But as I mean, because you play synths and a lot of the music that you mm -hmm. make is, is is quite synth. What I've always loved about Tony is is also that he's always he's got this great ear for when to. I mean, Corey, you may probably disagree with this, but when to play and when not to. Mm -hmm. And it's that it's that little kind of thing of I'm gonna I, what I need here is not a piano. It, this needs to be a synth pad. Or it needs to be a saw wave, or it needs, like you said, or it needs to be this weird sort of boingy thing in, in our cannons, whatever it is. He's, he's such a, he's so playful with synths that he's always willing to sort of think, okay, well, no one else has done this sound before, so I'll use that. That'll work here, you know? Right. Right. Yeah, because you really don't hear a lot of people using saw waves and, and things like that. I mean, you did in the early days of synthesizers because that was one of the only sounds they had. But nowadays, I mean, even in the eighties, there were plenty of sounds available and you just did not hear people using those kind of things. The other thing I think is nice is the way that he just fills out the song. He'll put pads in the background and things that just make the song sound really thick for a three piece. Yep. And, and I've always appreciated that, that technical side of him too. And I think that was the thing that you, you found a little bit overbearing sometimes Corey, right? When, it, sometimes it would get too much core, but I do think that goes back to that that idea that we talked about that Mike's not confident yet as a lead guitarist. So let's just let Tony do it. So now you've got it. Sometimes I think it is sometimes a little bit overwhelming on those first, I don't know, maybe three, four albums at times, but 
It is. I, I really have a love-hate relationship with Tony Banks. He still can't <laughs> fucking dress. Uh, take a look at that sweater on the throwing it all the way. That, that is just awful. Like, it was the 80s. Come oh, on. We were all wearing Phil him. Collins. Phil Collins is wearing his leather jacket, which is cool. Uh, Mike's got a cool little uh, splotchy type uh, business jacket going on there. And Phil, reject from the Cosby show. Banks, that's that's just terrible. <laughs> I, I'm going to disagree. I, I think that what Mike Rutherford is wearing there is whatever he was had on when he was painting the house. And uh, he just still he just a better fashion choice. Still a better choice. You know, I, I think I think the truth might be even worse, boys. I think it might be they all just wore whatever their PR person told them to wear. <laughs> if somebody dressed just... them for that, I'm just going to say they, they need to uh, not be dressing people. So Tony uh, Banks is such an anti-rock star, right? You see him on stage. He's looking down all the time. He's just plinking plunky away. Uh, one of my favorite scenes in the uh, Come Rain or Shine documentary is when uh, they got this world-class stage designer to design the stage for their uh, 2007 reunion tour. And it was going to have all these floating platforms. The band's on this platform, and it's moving up and down. And it's going to be so cool. And Tony Banks is like, well, I have vertigo, so fuck you. We can't do that. And, and they just kind of looked at him like, what? Like, you're just... Just Tony Banks is that kind of pull. Like, yeah, I have vertigo. Fuck you. Yeah. I got to be on the ground, looking down, not looking at the crowd. I never say a word. Just anti rock star stuff. Like Bono would be like, "Fuck yeah, put me on a thing. I'll go up and down, spin me around." Paul Stanley flies around the stadium every single night. Pink does that now. Yeah. Tony Banks, no, just let me wear my sweater. Give me my eight <laughs> keyboards. I only need one, but I'll have eight, and I'll just look down and I'll just play the tunes. Well, it's kind of like the Adam Clayton, right? Because you two is Adam yeah. Clayton's band, but everyone thinks it's Bono's. Where Genesis, I mean, it is Mike and Tony, but it's, I think it is, I think it's Tony, like you said, does have a lot of sway in that band. He's got the most yeah. instruments. You know, the, whoever's got the most instruments wins. And he's got like 98 <laughs> keyboards, so, you know. Yeah, and, and he's got so much to focus on. He really covers a lot in each song. And it amazes me, as a keyboard player myself, it always amazes me when I see guys like him who can just do five or six different things at once and keep track of it all from yeah. song to song to song, be able to load your patches from one song to the next so that you've got everything lined up. That is a lot of work. Yeah. When we didn't talk a lot about, you know, we, I suppose we did a little bit, but we talked, you know, about Mike being a more than a proficient bass player, an excellent technical bass player. And obviously Phil is one of the great rock drummers, jazz drum, you know, he's just a phenomenal player. Tony mm -hmm. Banks is an exceptionally talented technical keyboard player, piano player, orchestrator. I mean, he's, he's done classical albums. He's done, he's, name a genre, Tony Banks can do it. And so it's, it's, they're almost like Rush in that regard, hey, where you've got these three technical players who are sort of at the top of the game, but can still bring it all together so it doesn't just sound like three guys playing over top of one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, and that's what I was getting at. But yeah, I would yeah. like to see Tony Banks do some mumble rap. <laughs> Mumble rap? I tell you, Mike Rutherford could. He could. <laughs> do you think I've got time for a quick pee? I think Mike, Mike could only do mumble rap. I don't think he could do any of the yeah. kind of rap. <laughs> but as, as you mentioned, Phil Collins, um, outside of jazz fusion drummers, you really don't hear a lot of drummers utilizing cymbals the way that he does, the odd patterns that he plays. I mean, if you if you take Dodo Lurker and you listen to what he's playing on the hi-hat, oh it's God. absolutely I, insane. It's, Who yeah, plays it's, like that? Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, it, look, we're going to get into an orgasm fest when we get to Dodo Lurker because I think all three of us, from the drum standpoint, it's ridiculous, that song. Yeah, and I have tried playing that at halftime. It's, it's just insane how good that piece is. Mm -hmm. um, the only thing he does too, uh, that I love too is he puts I was talking to Corey about this where rock drummers don't tend to put drum rolls in snare rolls very right. often at all right because it's, that's not really what rock is about where Phil mm -hmm. puts them in and they're so tasty and the only other rock drummer that I can really think of who does it consistently is Jean-Paul Gaster from Clutch I don't know if you're I don't, you're probably not familiar with Clutch Scott I don't know Corey no. if you've listened to him much but the same kind of thing because he doesn't come from the rock world it's like Charlie Watts with the Stones right he didn't come from mm -hmm. rock and roll so yeah. they've got these different flavors that they can bring in that's not just straight backbeats. It's not just, you know, even not just straight syncopation. They can do things that are really interesting and really colorful. I would add Ian Pace to that from Deep Purple. He grew up uh, in the swing world, yeah. you know, playing a lot of swing shows. And uh, he is a very much a snare drummer's drummer. Well, the one-handed roll, I've seen him do it live. It's ridiculous. 
ridiculous. Yeah, I could do it for about six or seven seconds at max. Wow. And that's if I just wake up and I've had the right amount of coffee and the snare drums at the right <laughs> angle. And, you know, it's it's not easy. And he can he can go for a while yeah, on that. It's insane. very impressive. Um, so did, have you guys picked individually, not outside of your rankings, because when you're when you're analyzing a song, you look at it through a certain set of, of eyes and ears. Have you picked a favorite album? that has changed since you started doing the show? The one album that I have got a much better appreciation for and I like more now is Wind and Wuthering. Because I'd kind of forgotten about that one. I love Trick of the Tail. I don't love... And then there were three, and that's still... That's, excuse me, that's still the same. Duke I've always loved, and then everything else. Abacab, Genesis on, I know so well. But mm -hmm. Wind and Wuthering, I've kind of forgotten that there are a lot of really good songs on that album. And so going back to Wind and Wuthering and going through that, I'm thinking, because I think it, we rated that one, it came in, what, fourth maybe, Corey, or something like that? It was... Wind, wind and Wuthering was sixth out of eight. Oh, it was sixth. Okay. Oh, wow. okay. Yeah. Or maybe it was fourth for me. Maybe. It, it was very, very here. close, actually, when you get in there. Uh, yeah, because Trick of the Tail was a point and a half uh, higher. Okay. And it was fifth. How about you, Corey? Was there an album that you you came to really appreciate through doing the show that you weren't maybe didn't like or weren't familiar with before there was a couple actually a trick of the tail uh the first one mm -hmm. uh really kind of surprised me and then the other one was uh duke uh really really like duke and we we talked about how you know the big suite that was supposed to you know encompass duke and and how if they just changed a few things or changed the order yeah. would have made it so much better mm -hmm. but uh, there's a lot of gold on duke I, I would say that's probably uh probably my you know it's kind of dumb to say. It's probably my fourth favorite Genesis record right now out of uh, the eight that we've covered. Uh, it, it's maybe kind of eclipsing We Can't Dance a little bit. Uh, I would maybe maybe put it ahead of that one. Interesting. The, the one thing that I did find too, the thing, the thing that surprised me most though, Scott, was that when we got to Invisible Touch, it, that's the sort of the, it really is the pinnacle of Genesis as a pop band for sure. I mean, they mm -hmm. just, they nailed it. I mean, they were the biggest band in the world at that point. They were, they sold yeah. at Wembley Stadium four nights in a row, which no one does. But it surprised me how much the electronic drums bothered me when I started. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when you listen to it critically, it, you have to listen to it with a different set of ears. I was like, oh, man, that's, I don't love that now. It sounds really time-locked and dated. And I think if you take the production from Genesis or We Can't Dance and apply it to those songs on Invisible Touch, that becomes one of the best albums ever recorded. And I think the songs are still that strong. But mm -hmm. just that production aesthetic, it, it bothered me more than I thought it would. Yeah, I can understand that. Uh, I know Corey, you mentioned that a couple times too. That you were you were preferring that he he switched to acoustic and um, yeah. you know play something hardier with him. Yeah, especially on the track "Invisible Touch," I would have ranked that like a, a ten, ten, and five. Uh, and actually, uh, spoiler alert: when we get to our our, uh, our rankings of, of singles, "Invisible Touch" didn't make my my top ten, which really kind of surprised me because it was my favorite song growing up. Yeah. But again, it, it was the electronic drums and. There just wasn't any balls to it. There wasn't any backbeat to it. And uh, you think you would get that from a live version, but there's something missing from the live version too that never did quite nail. Uh, it never quite evolved into what Invisible Touch should have become. Whereas a song like Land of Confusion, they nailed right off the hop. Totally agree. Yeah. I think too, one of the things that labeling a band prog is, is not just about the style of music they play, but also being experimental sound-wise. And even when they got into their more commercial eras, those last couple of albums that you guys reviewed, I think they were still very experimental sound-wise, maybe a little bit to their detriment. Well, it, it, people forget that, you know, I mean, We Can't Dance, and Corey and I talked about this, We Can't Dance actually outsold Invisible Touch. Mm. Um, most of that was off the back of UK and European sales. It didn't do as well in the US as Invisible Touch did. But mm. there are, I mean, four songs over seven minutes, I think, on that album, and two over ten. So they definitely never abandoned. I mean, Tony, we, we, we found that, right, Corey? Tony Banks said, we never stopped doing the long songs. Mm. It's just that the pop songs and the singles eclipse them, and sort of people forget that we were still doing these these big epic things, right? Yeah, and if you if you do an epic song right, you can get a ten or twelve minute song, and it doesn't feel like a twelve or you know minute song. Yeah, it just it's it's interesting. It keeps you attentive, and before you know it, the song's over, and you're like, "Holy shit, that was ten minutes!" Yeah, and we're going to talk about one of those definitely as we get through this, and certainly in my <laughs> top ten. So. <laughs> 
Well, let's take a look at the the overall rankings for the albums. Do you have those up, Corey? I do. Yeah, I, I don't have a graphic or anything. I was working today, but I can tell you, uh, Invisible Touch, uh, no surprise, was our number one album. The winner, if you will, of the Ultimate Catalog Clash, eighty seven point five percent for Invisible Touch. Uh, Forty five out of fifty is what I gave it. I was I can't quite remember offhand what uh, what Kev's score was, but eighty seven and a half uh, by far was the winner there. Number two. Uh, was actually uh, Genesis from 1983, 83.5% gets a uh, number two ranking. Uh, and then we're really close. Number three was We Can't Dance at 76%. Uh, number four was Duke at 74.5%. Uh, number five was A Trick of the Tail at 73.5%. Uh, Winded Withering came in at number six, 72%. Uh, and then number seven was Abacab, uh, 68.5%. And number eight, and then there were three. 65.5 percent so that's how our rankings kind of sh uh, shook out but what i found interesting is kevin sittner saying uh, I, I would rank abacab much much higher if i'm reading it as an album but we listened to the whole thing and it, it, it kind of ranked kind of where i thought it would there's some stinkers on abacab it's a really high highs and low lows and i gotta tell you abacab the title track was not a song i listened to really before we did this it's still stuck in my head and i'm <laughs> still bopping along loving it, it it's one of my favorite tracks all of a sudden it's one of the best call and response songs ever, I think. Yes. Yeah. But, yes, but let me call. ask you this. Looking at those rankings, with the exception of Abacab, and I understand why it's in the position that it's in, uh, do, you, do you think that part of that comes from the fact that most of the albums that are in those top four spots were ones that you were really familiar with, you were comfortable, that's audio comfort food for you. And then as you're kind of getting into the the older albums that you don't know as well, they're like, yeah, we still like this stuff, but it's not my comfort food. Do you think that played a factor into some of the rankings, maybe the nostalgia factor? Potentially, I hope not. I hope I was listening to it with an analytical enough ear that I could be a little, uh, you know, and, and not be biased by nostalgia, but I probably was. You know, I, I'm not ashamed. Hard, of I mean, you're human. It's hard not to be. But yeah. I, I don't recall on the show you guys really getting into that. You saying, well, you know, I, I first heard this song when I was dating this girl. And, it, you know, we were like, there, I didn't really get the sense that you guys were dipping into that pool too much, which is why I thought I'd ask the question, because maybe subconsciously you were, but I don't think consciously either one of you really was. Well, I Kevin think, never dated a girl in high school. So <laughs> that's part of the problem. I, I didn't. And you know what? Had I, you know, you know, one of the reasons is because I was listening to Eleventh Earl of Mar, and that's just not going to get you laid, ladies and gentlemen. It just does not. It's not. It's not sexy music. Well, it's not in too deep. Anyway. Nope. It's, it's that Tony Banks sweater. It's just not going anywhere. No, I mean, I think that one of the one of the comments I have on that is that I think the format that Corey came up with sort of takes some of that out of the the question. When you've got to look at a song and be critical on the lyrics, the music, and I would say that. You know, some of the songs I, as we went through, I said, well, it's, it's maybe like an eight, an 8.5 and a four, but overall I'm giving that song a 10. But because mm -hmm. then we're rating eight, 8.5, so that's so we, we'd, we'd rate each song and then we'd say, well, what's the average of that? Or, you know, it's close to that for the whole side, because I think that doing it that way made it more objective. And when I look back at some of those scores, especially for Duke and for even for Abacab, I think, yeah, but I love those albums. Mm -hmm. so but but then it does show you that even when we love something nostalgically or sentimentally if you are being more objective about it you can't say that abacab is as good as uh wind and wuthering or trick mm -hmm. of the tail or we can't dance or genesis it just isn't because there are some tracks on there that are, that are just a bit weaker again it's one of those things though that just the, the highs they can they tend to carry there like dodo lurker can carry seven other weak songs because it's so good for me mm -hmm. right Right. But what I found well, uh, here, here's an interesting thing, though. Uh, we can't dance. I, I rated 37 out of 50. Duke, I gave 38. So you're talking about the nostalgia factor. Yeah. Going into this, I thought we can't dance would have blown Duke out of the water because I only knew like one or two Duke songs. I actually like right. Duke better going through this format that I did. We can't dance. Interesting. I think I think you're right, Kevin. I think it does. The, the format that you came up with, Corey, really does kind of force the analytical side because you're you're walking into each song looking for how you're going to rate it. Mm -hmm. But I would imagine there are those times when you're like, you just get into the song because it's such a good song. And your rankings of the albums really kind of go along with the popularity of the albums. And it's like, well, this album was top because it had a lot of hits. That's why it ranked the way it did, because people liked it.
And the yeah. reason they liked it is because it's that damn good. Well, and the, the naysayers for Genesis tend to be the, you know, the, the nerdy proggy guys of which I, like I said, I'm a, I sort of count myself one in a way. But you can't look at a song like Throwing It All Away or Jesus he Knows Me or Mama or even like Illegal Alien, which we sort of commented on some of the, some of the issues around that song. Mm. Melodically, they're fantastic. I mean, they're brilliantly written. They're brilliantly arranged. They're punchy. They've got a hook. You can hum them. There's nothing about that that's, you know, as a song, okay, it's not a, if you're rating it as a prog song, then Jesus He Knows Me is a pile of crap because there's no real, it's got a bridge in it, which is kind of cool, but there's not much movement in that song. It doesn't do much outside of the parameters of what it is. But as a piece of pop music, which is how we had to rate it, really, it's fantastic. Like I said, I mean, I don't, it's, it's difficult. I was talking on, on Twitter today, Corey, about this with someone or other, one of our listeners, who I was saying that the Phil Collins era as a sort of a of an era for us to pick was challenging because Trick of the Tail, Wind and Wither, and then there were three Duke, and then Abacab, Genesis, Invisible Touch, We Can't Dance. You could almost separate those two out just because they're so different in terms of what the band was trying to do. So we're not really comparing apples to oranges when we're comparing Invisible Touch to Wind and Wuthering, right? Just in terms of what they were doing musically. Yeah. Well, you can't. I mean, it, it would be impossible to take any two albums and really put them up against each other in an apples to apples comparison because the band is is a different band every time they record a new album, right? Yeah. They take what they've learned on their previous tour, what they've learned on everything else that they've done, and that's part of the next album. Then they do a tour, and then that tour gets added to that pile, and the next album's different. Unless you're a band who's really specifically writing you know, very geared to be played on radio music, you're going to change and grow with every album. So you really can't compare one album to another in that light. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And of course, there's also the, there is a subjective thing where it's just what me and Corey like, right? Yeah. And so it's funny, we found that quite often we'd have the same, we'd end up with the same or roughly around about the same score for an album side, but Corey would like these two songs and I would like those two songs a little bit more. So that was, that was always interesting too, to find really that one. Oh, okay. No, I get it. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Now, you both seem like good guys to me. I've, I've known you for a while, but why the hell do you hate Snowbound so much? <laughs> it's literally about a guy who beat another man to death in a snowman suit. Yet it's creative. <laughs> it's idiotic. <laughs> I just, hey, if, I, if the guy fell for it, he deserves to get beat. <laughs> There's I the just, Detroit coming out in you. <laughs> <laughs> the Motor City. You, you know you know what it is for me? Uh, I think I think part of it for me is nostalgia. It's like the time that I heard the song and winters in yeah. Michigan versus like if I heard that here where it's, you know, 90 degrees on Christmas, it probably wouldn't have meant so much to me. But I, I love the the atmosphere of that song. And I'm not a big flute fan, but I love that simulated flute. Um, I just I love the gentleness of the vocals. I'm I'm a big fan of like a slide across the guitar going into uh into that chorus i i don't know that song has always hit really really well for me but i tell you what if you remember i i my i looked up my rankings i actually gave it eight and a half for music five mm -hmm. for lyrics because they're ridiculously stupid and four <laughs> for production so i wasn't too bad on snowbound actually there you I go look at what did i i mean i i, I should were you a one one and one I'm no, sure it was, I was low. No, I was not at one, one, and one. I was a two, okay. two, and one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I rescind my comment. <laughs> I think that, I mean, maybe that was being a bit overboard there. What my problem with that, no, again, problem with that, Jesus, as Randy always says on the Queen podcast, I would, I would love to take even 10% of Mike Rutherford's royalties from that song, and I would love to have written it. <laughs> yeah. But I just find it never goes anywhere. That's my, it's just, it just gets a bit, okay, we've done this now. And Genesis at the best, especially in this era, were really interesting. And that's, if a song, if I have to describe a Genesis song as a bit dull, it's like, oh man, I don't know. And if you look at everything else, if you look at there's two songs the other side of it, Ballad of Big and Burning Rope, they're just infinitely more interesting, there's more movement. So it's just, it's just not a song that I've ever connected with, is all it is. Interestingly, though, you could take a song like Ripples and have a really long solo section and just put backwards guitar in there, or, you know, maybe he's using the volume uh, pedal. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and, and you could take a song like that and it is lo a long passage of instrumental. And then it just goes back into the chorus. Yeah. But that is highly enjoyable. It's got movement. And I mean, as Corey said, I, I love Mark Rutherford. 
I'm a massive Mark and Mechanics fan, and maybe they'll end up on our list at some point, Corey, once we've got a bit of space between, you know, uh, mm-hmm. us and Genesis. But hey, there's a snowman. Hey, hey, what a snowman. Pray for the snowman. Ooh, ooh, what a snowman. I just, it's too Elsa and Anna for me. It's just a bit. Why did too... I give it a five for lyrics? <laughs> Jesus. I missed the boat. That's a two. You sold it even more with that delivery right there. I should say, too, though, I mean, Scott, we, we had that conversation on the Tom Petty project when you were on. You don't you don't listen to lyrics first, right? So lyrics are, you know, a secondary consideration. And that's where this song is a bit like, oh, my God, what the, what is this? And Corey got very frustrated a number of times with lyrics that were just sort of a bit like, you know, you would say pretentious, I would say whatever and you know it but it's, it's different strokes for different folks i guess is what I'm, I'm getting down to when i say it yeah and, and for me i typically look at vocals as more of an instrument than yeah. a, a than, than a narrator and so for me it's it's the pitches that he's hitting that gentleness those ranges that are mm-hmm. are just such a sweet spot that you don't hear from him a lot and uh, and I it's something else I enjoyed, but as many times as you guys said I was going to hate you for ranking it low, no, I don't at all. I was just I was surprised, but uh, I mean I understand where you're coming from. Yeah. Um, even if you're wrong, it's okay. Because <laughs> if only I was ever wrong, I, I would agree. But geez, <laughs> <laughs> see, it hasn't Corey and I, Corey and I do an Aerosmith show, and the only question that we have to ask ourselves is, which is the girl that Steven Tyler's singing about? <laughs> Yeah. And how old is she? Is it okay that he's singing about her? Is it okay? God. <laughs> right, yeah. Was this the song that caused a restraining order? And then let's quickly yeah. move on to the bass line because when we're talking about Aerosmith, we can always talk at least about the bass guitar. Yeah. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> and that is something that is kind of weird about Genesis is their songs sound well-rounded, but there does often seem to be a lack of bass guitar. Or it's certainly a, not a bad mix, but a consciously subdued mix for Mike because there's been a bunch of songs that Corey and I have like said well what's your next timestamp and it's both of us like we've got to talk about Mark's bass here this little little lick or the bass part he's playing because he is a fantastically talented bass guitarist and he does play very interesting parts but with I think with Genesis his role is not to be the he's he's not the star player right because you've got Tony and you've got Phil if you've got Mike it's that thing you said again about, about balance right if Mike's also playing all over the place on the bass, then I think you lose a little bit of the impact from the part. So I think it is a conscious thing that the band and him decided to do. It's a shame because, like you said, I mean, when he does let rip, the guy can play. The guy can seriously play. Absolutely. He reminds me of John Deacon a lot, actually. If they would let him be up front a little more like Deakey, he might be considered a a really good bass player like John Deacon is. And songwriter, too. The guy wrote some fucking killer tunes, even with Mike and the Mechanics, right? I was just listening to Living Years Today. You know, oh, fantastic song. record, right? And great yeah. song. All I need is a miracle. Is, is still one of my, one of my favorite tracks. Like, uh, incredibly talented songwriter, but he never gets his due. And you said it kind of diminishes. Sometimes not. Sometimes there's the three of them doing a big instrumental section, and you know Phil's bashing away, and Tony's doing his thing. Fuck, just bring up Mike too. Let him play too. He's there, but it's really really low. Just yeah. I yeah. I always make the comment: grab that fader, just slide it up a little bit, because <laughs> Mikey knows what he's doing. I'm, I'm a Mike Rutherford fan. It's it's almost like they use him just to thicken instead of featuring him when they could yeah. feature him a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Good call. Yeah. Very interesting. So we have uh, we have a few trivia questions. I'm going to start with uh, with oh, mine uh, because I've kind of given away a little bit of it here tonight. But you guys, I think, have uh, have known it on the show. Um, what are my f- five favorite Genesis songs? <laughs> oh my god okay it, we're working together on this are we scott yeah, or do I have yeah, to pick this five? Is, no this is together because it would be uh okay. it would be ridiculous to make you both do it but you i think you've nailed them all on the show and is this only phil collins era then yeah my five favorite genesis songs you covered all five okay okay well snowbound is definitely one snowbound is right. one dodo lurker, dodo lurker. Is definitely one yep no then after that <laughs> i think maybe we I'm gonna I'm gonna discount quite a lot of the pop stuff, Corey, and I don't know yep. exactly why, but I wonder about Duchess. Nope. Okay. I was wondering about that one too. Uh, I'm I'm thinking maybe something. I, did, I do really like that song, but it's not one of my top five. Okay. Abacab. Abacab is on that list. Three. Okay. Pull your weight. It better, it better not be who done it. 
<laughs> it is not whodunit. I, I will say that. Well, so I'm not. This is not my answer, but I'm going to confer with my friend here. We've already okay. established that Scott does like something that's a little bit gentle, a bit so something like Madman Moon or Your Own Special Way or something in that vein. I wonder. Mad Mad Moon. Like I, I was thinking maybe. Yeah, I, I don't think he'd go for Your Own Special Way, but uh, Madman Moon I can go for. I was uh, almost kind of wondering Eleventh Earl of Mar too. Okay, mm. let's go with that one first. Then Eleventh Earl of Mar. Nope. Ah, oh, fuck. <laughs> well, you mentioned <laughs> ripples earlier. That that wouldn't be. Oh one, yeah. Yep, ripples. Yeah, there ripples, we go. We've got four. Mm-hmm. Hey, we're doing all right. So we've only had like two or three incorrect guesses. I think we're doing okay. I know. Yeah. One what, one what, I'll say is an instrument. The, the last one I'll say is an instrumental. What gorilla? And you, and you specifically said Scott probably loves this song. It is not what is, gorilla. Damn. Oh man. I like the, I like what gorilla. Although that that would have been a good choice. That would be up there on my list, but not top. Well, I'm not going to say the Brazilian because that seems a little too mainstream for Scott. And I don't think we've talked about it either tonight. Nope. Uh, Not Los Endos because we haven't talked about that either. I can't see it being Duke's Travels, even though I love that. It's tougher with Genesis because there's a lot more instrumentals than with most bands. I know, yeah. I'm trying to think. So we... Yeah, we've said. You sure it's not Duke's so we, Travels? Should we go with Duke's Travels, maybe? Eh. Travels. Eh. Nope. See, Scott also hates Thunder, so he he doesn't like good music. So what's a really bad one? <laughs> I wonder. Corey's going to be forever hurt that I did not like his Thunder album. <laughs> it's a good record, you motherfucker. Anyway. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm blanking on other instrumentals. Yeah, I'm Scott. trying to. Or, uh, Kevin, look, help me out here. I'm th- looking through the list. Okay, because there's three, and I didn't. Okay, give me. We'll, a we'll make up for it, Corey, when we do our Debbie Gibson podcast. So, because <laughs> I hate all her music, so that'd be great. Okay, so we got. I mean, Los Andos, What Gorilla, Unquiet Slumbers for the Sleepers, which is, that's a, or, uh, sorry, in that quiet earth is a pretty great track. Is it in that uh, quiet? I, I would go go for that one, maybe. Nope. Not co- nope. Man, okay. It can't be something from Calling All Stations, Scott. That's not a Phil Collins era Genesis song. That's true. No, it's it's a song you covered on this on this very podcast. Oh man. I don't listen to this podcast. Fuck. Okay, so we've ruled out the Brazilian. We, we've even mentioned it tonight, although we did not talk about the song. It's is it the Brazilian? It is the Brazilian. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's very much movie, like you know. Toto Lurker. Uh, those Tom runs are absolutely yeah. fantastic. I love the multi layers of percussion on it, and I like the keyboard passage where where I, I guess would be the chorus of the song. Yeah, um, I just like the simpleness of it, and it's weird for me to say that, but it's just a nice little pattern. Big Miami Vice fan, are you? <laughs> <laughs> Jan Hammer and Harold Faltermeyer. <laughs> and I got no problem. I got no problem with Brazilian or either of those two gentlemen. So yeah, I'm with you on that one. Yeah, it's a great track, uh, and and that track for me I think is a bit nostalgia too because I heard that right when I moved to Arizona, got a job doing inventory auditing, and had to drive down to Tucson like the second week I lived there, and I had three songs on that tape from Genesis. It was Many Too Many, Snowbound, and The Brazilian. Yeah, and it was uh, end of August. The, the sun was like just perfect for a song like The Brazilian. And uh, so there's definitely a nostalgia factor, but yeah, I absolutely love that song. Absolutely well, love it. When you just um, mentioned too many, too many as well is a, a fabulous, yeah. fabulous song. Great. You know, it's, I think it's a, it, it sounds so simple, but that is a tough vocal. It is. Yeah. It's, it's hard. Well, you know, as, as I was saying, you know, it's to sing in your mid range or your lower range is always harder than to belt because belting yeah. you pushing a lot of areas. It's really easy to sustain that mm-hmm. note. And that's where Phil was he's in that sort of croonier mode in that in those early albums. And man, Phil Collins again, I mean, he's kind of seen as a bit of a figure of ridicule these days, but he's a fantastic vocalist. I'd put him like, you know, another guy I think, you know, Corey White and doing is Brian Adams, who just sort of gets put to one side as well. Yeah, he's just a pop guy, but no, that guy can sink. He can anything you want to put in front of him, that boy can sink. And thank you, 100%. Canada. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> our uh, our good friend Chaz. 
from all the Chaz related podcasts that are on the Deep Dive Podcast Network, uh, the many of them that he's doing now, uh, he was kind enough to take some time and write in some trivia questions. So I'll fire a couple of those maybe now, and then we'll uh, we'll pepper those in throughout the night. Uh, as we learned last night on uh, the most recent episode of And the Podcast Will Rock, uh, Chaz does not hate humans being, he hates human beings. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I don't blame him. Um, so what year was the album Invisible Touch released? So do you want us to send those, these to you in a... Pro- or do you just want us to say them? Or how are we doing the... Why do you want to do it? Uh, what's, the, what's the mechanism? Shout out. Okay. It is... Oh, fuck the knife. 87, 86. It's one Kevin. of those two. Well, which one is it? You got to pick. Years. <laughs> <laughs> Why do I got to pick? 75 and... Well, do you want me to go first? 80... Yeah, you go first. 86. 86, <laughs> I knew it. All right, you both got that. All right, maybe what I'll do is I'll trade off. Uh, I'll ask each one because we have an even number there of questions go. left. So, there you go. Uh, Corey, which song from the album Genesis was a hit single in 1986? In 1986? In 1986. And I imagine that, that Chaz stayed sober for this. <laughs> uh, I think Mama was a hit when it first came out in 83, so not that one. Is it That's All? No. Oh, shit. Kevin? Kevin knows. I would... So sorry, it's from Genesis, you said? From, Ge- from the album Genesis in... 1986. And we're saying a hit specifically. It said which song from the album Genesis was a hit single? In 86. Well, my answer would be none. But if I've got to pick one, I'll say Illegal Alien. In Too Deep. Well, that came from Invisible Touch. Genesis. Yeah. Oh, no. Chaz, what the fuck? From the album Genesis. So that's it. That's like incorrect. It, it, it was a it yeah. was a late hit, maybe. No, it's just the wrong it, album. In Too Deep is not on that album. <laughs> it's on Invisible Touch. Oh. Well, then I take back what I said about Chaz's sobriety. <laughs> Fucking Chaz. <laughs> Amazing. All right, so that's going well. <laughs> Can't wait for the rest of these. <laughs> I, I thought it was a trick question. What song charted from an album three years yeah. prior? You well, know, sometimes though, I, things I, will I, get re-released or something. And I, was like, I was thinking, yeah. I, can't, I can't think of a single... Typically, that would happen if a if an older song is chosen for a film soundtrack and the, yeah. the soundtrack to the film is popular uh, right. or, you know, that song has is, is gained notoriety as a, as a single because of its inclusion in a film. So that's usually why that would happen. Or there's some, you know, greatest hits album or something that came out. Um, yeah, so I'm not, I'm not going to be too trusting on the rest of these. No, I want, I want the point on that one. Cause the question was so bad and so wrong. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, good with that. I'm good with that. Hey everyone, Corey here. We're having so much gosh darn fun with Scott Haskin talking about season one of the ultimate catalog clash. We'd figured we'd make you wait just a little bit longer to find out who won and who's picking the band for season two. So join us next week. When we have more uh, insanely idiotic questions from Chaz, we go through our top tens and we reveal who won season one of the Ultimate Catalog Clash and who's picking the artist for season two.